Welcome to episode number 86 of Off the Shelf. This episode is part three of our interview with Deb Dalton Thibodeau, the author of The Serpent's Tale, an epic poem chronicling her abuse as a child by followers of William Branham. The book is available from Adelaide Books and on Amazon. A link to where you can purchase a copy of the book is on our website. Now back to our interview with Deb Thibodeau. There's a part in your book where you get ripped out of your home and you're transplanted into a home of a couple that don't have kids, Herb and Grace. And it's like suddenly in this black and white, terrible environment, you get colored because these people put uh, obviously put some love into your life. What happened to Herb and Grace? We don't want to spoil any, anything for people who haven't read the book yet, but it's it's just, it was uh, very interesting to me. I was kind of curious to say, okay, so what, this wonderful couple who you were, you spent you know, a year and a half, two years with, and you know, what ended up happening to them? So I believe, I believe actually Leo Mercier had some notion of psychological I believe he knew how to manipulate people psychologically. And I believe his intention was to, because they were cultured people. Um, Brother Herb was educated and kind, kind man. Um, And I was you know, trailer trash, the last of 12. And I believe that what he wanted to do was bring them down a notch or two by throwing this uncultured child at them. And what they did was they were wise enough to see that I was very close to broken. I feel like I was on the verge of no return when I went to their house. I had given up. There's no Jesus. There's no parents. There's no family. There's no protectors. By then I had experienced police that don't protect you, teachers that don't protect you. So it was just one more place for me to go and expect more punishment free of any kind of concern from my parents. So what I experienced was exactly the opposite. And they just took me in and they brought me back from that edge just by kind of letting me be a child. Now, these are two people who were message, who were in the park, who, who lived to the very last of their days in the message. But they, you know, Brother Herb, he was just, his brain was somewhat outside of it, if, if that's any way to say it, in that he, he allowed me to have books, to read, to experience. And then he would, he would take great pleasure in discussing those books with me. And they weren't the Bible. They weren't 
the message. They weren't the voice of God. Um, I'm talking about Limiz. Um, uh, Good literature. Yes, um, classics. Uh, gosh, The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, and, and, you know, we would go to flea markets and he found a huge stack of these old classics and he brought them all home for me. So we're talking about all of them, 2000 Leagues Under the Sea, um, you know, The Secret Garden, Robin Hood, Hamlet, Othello, Macbeth, King Lear's Daughters. And of course, you know, I've talked a lot in my book about the two that we discussed most frequently and, and that would be and these are the things how I sort of likened them to the way he felt about tea. He was passionate about tea. He was kind of a foodie and I had never experienced things like that. Our food at home was basic. It was oatmeal, it was bacon, it was eggs, it was toast, green beans, you know. When I came to their house, I experienced things I had never experienced before. I had never had um, caviar on a cracker or pickled daikon or you know, poppy seed crackers, things I'd never heard of, but I had a very curious mind. So I never said no, I always wanted to try. And these books, the first time, the first day that I sat at their table when I was still half out of my mind, he was, the tea was steeping on the table. He didn't say anything to me about the horrible child that I was. He didn't say anything to me about being a molester of other little girls. He didn't, he didn't call me any names. He just talked to me about tea and how tea had to be contemplated and it had to steep for exactly the right amount of time. And then you just enjoy it while you converse. And that was like the opening salvo. And I could actually breathe because I understood in that moment that maybe my life wasn't just gonna be another stint in terror. And when, and I talked about how we talked about the, the forgiveness of Jean Valjean, the revenge saga of Edmond Dantes, and we talked about both of those things. And he never made a conclusion for me he never took me to the place where he thought I should go. He just let me go there. But in looking back, I feel like those are things that then just steeped in my mind, like perfect tea. Do I forgive or do I want revenge? And revenge was a huge part of my life in my mind until... I had an opportunity to forgive. And ultimately, I chose forgiveness. And that, I learned something about myself in that too. So you, you tell a story of, uh, which I've, as a guy, kind of found fascinating that the older men organized uh, fist fights for some of the teenage boys, which I... I can't imagine it. It didn't sound like they were wearing boxing gloves. This sounded like it was just bare knuckled, uh, letting the teenage kids go at each other and, until they couldn't go anymore, which is, you know, again, another very cruel thing to do. Did that, was that just a one-off or 
Is that something that happened more than once? That only happened once that is large in my memory. And it's because it's attached to the beginning of that event in which my older brother had been clocked in the head by another kid. They were out in the woods running a big draft horse and pulling logs down out of the hills. And he showed up at home bleeding from this huge laceration in his head. He had blood, you know, mom grabbed a dish towel. She pushed it on his head and she was sitting there with him. But the other kid primed the story, you know? So dad came home and I will never forget him leaving my mother sitting in the kitchen with a bloody dish towel in her hand and dragging Johnny down to the garage. So we had all these main points in the park. We had the dining hall. We had the toddle house. The dining hall was the adults. The toddle house was the children. We had the chapel. We had the tape room. We had the office and we had the garage and the garage now, and you have to understand that I only know about this from how it has been described to me. I didn't see it. Yeah, yeah. But my brother was then, I believe that it was spur of the moment. I believe they decided just to pit these two boys against each other. Who had already fought. Who had already been in a fight. And yeah. my brother had been whacked in the head with a two by four or a piece of wood or something, but he was bleeding from the head. So he was down there with an open wound on his head and they pit those boys against each other and they fought with each other tooth and nail, just hands, fists. There was no boxing gloves. There was no organization. It was just go at it. One of you wins. And then for whatever reason, they wanted more. So I can only relate this to bloodlust. You know, it was fun. And blood sport. Yeah, that's it's watching these it's like boys the Colosseum fight. in Rome they pulled somebody another kid in and made made my brother fight that kid and then when that one was over but before that fight started they handicapped my brother by smacking him in the shins with a metal bar so we're talking about a kid whose head is already cut open wow. he's already been in one brawl with with a kid a year or two older than him and now he's in a brawl with a second one. And then when that one was over, they just decided, oh, let's take it a little further. And so they dragged in my other brother, my other younger brother, not younger than me, but the youngest of my brothers, and made him fight the younger brother of the boy that, that was originally in the original conflict. So I feel like it was just, wow, this is kind of cool. It, like a cockfight, you know? I, I wonder if they put money on it. I'll yeah, yeah. It. I mean, that was a, that's the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> they so, were having... I, I do know what happened. Yeah. And, and I watched these things harden my older brother and injure the younger one. Their, their brains were different, just like... Yeah. So, um, for our listeners... Um, I want to uh, specifically talk about a specific incident, uh, a person, a, a, a young man who again was raised in the park. And, and I've done a little bit of research, um, but I know you know much more. Um, and that's a, a man by the name of Keith Loker, who was one of the children abused while he lived at the park. 
Keith Loker was convicted of four counts of robbery, two counts of first degree murder, uh, one count of attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon, second degree commercial burglary, was given the death penalty. How, how, I mean, I'm assuming, you know, um, that happened to him. What happened to him caused him to become who he was. Is that correct? That's correct. Now, Keith was only about five when the park broke, or going on five. He was born in 1971, and I was living with my sister. I moved to my sister's when he was about two, and I was there till he was almost four. And my personal belief is that he's probably on the spectrum. Um, and he didn't talk when he was very young. And his mother was, I'm trying to think how to put this. Leo Mercier married his mother to a man known to be homosexual. It was a, their way of pray the gay away. Um, they were going to marry him to a woman, a divorcee. And strangely enough, with my older sister, this all happened before marriage and divorce came out. And they, my understanding, at least what I've heard, because remember, I was still a child, yeah. is that they worked to get this done before marriage and divorce was actually released. They were told that this is something's coming out. So if you're going to do anything, do it now. So she gave up custody. She divorced her first husband and gave up custody of her two older sons who were horribly abused in the park. In fact, one of them is, um, you know, I mentioned in the beating story, what happened to one of them, but, um, and then they married her to this man, um, a, a kind man, but he was homosexual. And this was their attempt to fix him. Their, their relationship was, I, she loved him. I don't know that he loved her. Um, and their consummation occurred based on beating him up and putting him there. So they had three children, the oldest named by Leo Mercier, named Leo Eugene, who died at birth. And then also when Keith was born, he was named by by Leo Mercier, Keith Thomas. And I can remember my sister talking about how, why would he want him to have this name? Because Thomas was the doubter. Well, Keith was not, his tendency was not homosexual. And when they left the park, he did not experience the degree of abuse in his very young years that I did, because by that time, Leo was very well uh, inundated in his drugs and alcohol. Um, and, but they then moved to a church in Indiana under Coleman, Tommy Dillard. And I believe his life there was equally horrible because people assumed that he was homosexual because his father was. 
And so that sort of thing was thrown on him the same way me being a sexual predator was thrown on me. I feel like I was lucky enough to take that abuse and turn it into something different. But Keith was wildly conflicted between the two families. And he was enchanted with the idea of the Dalton gang. And you know what, what the message and what Leo Mercier ripped us away from is the Pulaski County Daltons. There's a lot of them and they're wonderful people that I would give almost anything to have spent my life getting to know and be part of. But they were disavowed. I didn't even know we had the family we had in Kentucky for so many years. So the family that my sister married into, there was a lot of conflict between the two families. But marriages between the two families kind of, you know, it was on again, off again, but it was never an easy relationship. And as Keith got older, almost anything he did, somebody would throw that homosexual thing at him, including my own family, you know. Um, I felt like the first time I saw someone who needed help was when I was visiting with my sister and my son was about five and he and, and Keith were playing with some trucks on very innocent. It was innocent. They were just playing with trucks on the carpet, but my sister got so nervous and so upset and worried that she kind of called him down. And he immediately understood what she was thinking. That was the point in time that I felt like Keith needed some help. He needed some counseling. He needed some psychological intervention. But of course, the only intervention is church. That was the thought. Yeah. And in church, he was vilified. So in so many ways, the kid didn't have a chance. People could see that he was not socially adept. When he was in a crowd, he would always take things too far. Um, he didn't know when to kind of shut things down. He was funny. He, he, he loved Jeff Foxworthy jokes, you know, but his confusion arose from his own if he liked a girl and that girl didn't respond to him, then, then his own fear was that somehow he was homosexual and maybe didn't know it. I can't speak to all of it, but I do think it's what drove him to the past that he came to. Yeah. And when we, when we sat in that trial, what I decided is that Keith could not be completely held responsible for what he did yes he committed horrible things and yes he is he has done criminal heinous things but he was broken as a child by by overzealous preachers and religion children are natural entities and a lot of their evolution has to do with sexuality whether they're preached at, whether they're 
talked to, whether they're told what's right, whether we're told what's wrong, they still have these organs and these body parts that react when, when they, you know, understand that they're there. So that thing that happens when was always so overwhelmingly shameful and Keith was shamed at such a young age for doing something a lot of children do. You know, they yeah. just recognize that they have bits and pieces that act strangely and uh, trying to figure out how they work. But his attraction was to girls. He liked girls, but they didn't respond well to him. And when they didn't respond well to him, that would make him angry and confused. I feel like what happened was Keith making a decision to just be the robber baron, to be the gang guy, the, and in some ways it was all kind of funny to him. You know, when he, when he came back to Arizona after the original crimes and he had breakfast with some of my nephews and he told them I killed a bunch of people in California this weekend, you know? Wow. And they thought he was joking. And we had some connections or one of my family had connections with a detective there in Flagstaff and they found that it was true. It was LA County. They weren't even looking in Arizona for anyone. So that evening when he figured out that everybody knew he took off and he ran from the police again. He loved cars. He loved to drive. He was a good driver. Um, he had, I believe he had a lot of fantasy in his mind yeah. about being this outlaw, you know, and, and who can say exactly what he had in his mind if going out in the blaze of glory was his ultimate quest but he was stopped by uh, an armed citizen so that changed that thought and i have i have taken my sister to visit him numerous times over the years and we talk we talk a lot um and so he now is someone who from the time he's 19 until he's 50 has been on death row and Sometimes when we're there, he doesn't seem very involved with the message and other times he does. Um, he, he, but he has accepted his life there. And I feel that had he not come to that pass, there would have been more criminal activity because it was how he felt alive. But it was all the umbrella that got tossed on him as a child. He should have been raised without anyone making him aware of his father's homosexual yeah. past. Well, and, and or, or at least not to transfer that onto him, right? Why make it automatic? Yeah. You know, and 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 you yeah. Automatically assign proclivities to children. Yeah. So I, I read a I read a book last year, uh, What Happened to You, uh, which is by Dr. Bruce Perry and uh, Oprah Winfrey, oh, a, a very enlightening book to me. And it, it talks about the impact of physical, emotional, and psychological trauma on children and how it impacts um, them in later life. And, and, and that we should never ask someone, the, the wrong question is what's wrong with you. The right question is what happened to you? Because often what happened to children very tra uh, traumatic events, 
uh, particularly abuse happening in their early childhood uh, can significantly create dysfunction um, and, and, uh, and fear um, in their later lives. I mean, I, I certainly have seen this in the message, kids who suffered from emotional, psychological abuse at the hands of their parents um, while in the message. And, you know, later on, they end up in jail, a variety of felonies. And I don't have any doubt it was because of the abuse that they suffered. Uh, they're good kids who were emotionally shattered by their parents. Um, so one of the things, you know, I, I read through the, the court transcript um, and, and I hadn't known that you were in the trial, but it, the, the transcript stated, uh, talks about Leo, uh, they call him Mercer rather than Mercier. Um, Mercer ordered that a girl's hair be cut off to punish her because he had had a vision from God that she had been sexually inappropriate with young children. She was beaten and forced to wear masks and clothes that covered much of her body, hiding her bruises. Her fingertips were burned so that she would know what hell felt like. Was that referring to you? That brings us to the end of this portion of our interview with Deb Thibodeau. If you have any questions, please go to the offtheshelf.life website. There is space for comments and questions at the bottom of each episode. I've asked Deb if she would answer any questions that our listeners might post. Or you can send me an email at rod at offtheshelf.life. Please let us know if there are any issues or questions that you think we should address. Or someone we should consider interviewing. Thank you very much for listening. And remember that God loves you and is not afraid of your questions. Have a great week.